Hey everyone, it's Ali and Felix. And today's guest is Ken Yang, who we split into two parts because there was just so much knowledge. Quite a lot of knowledge, actually, I would say. Yeah, he really dropped a lot of really interesting insights for us. So we'll get into part one right now. Part one's all about his uh, experience at U of T and just growing up and learning from some of his mentors. Um, and then uh, part we'll share two, with- yeah, just really more about his business and what he's up to. Yeah, exactly. Let's get started. Let's get started, man. Hey, Ken. Thanks for joining Upile and myself on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, you've got a, a very interesting and diverse background. And uh, maybe you can start by a small summary about what you've done or, or what you felt you've done. Uh, so I've built several companies, uh, the first two with a professor at the University of Toronto. The uh, first one was actually uh, Splash Tones, which builds um, architectural technologies. And one of our flagship products was uh, the world's first musical instrument that used water. And the professor that I had co-founded this company with is a pretty prolific inventor. He is widely known as the inventor and the father of wearable computing. And um, you know, a lot of the, the wearables that we know today, like smartwatches, um, smart glasses, those were his inventions. And uh, back in the 80s, he had brought these inventions, a whole portfolio of them over to MIT and started the wearable computing lab um, at the MIT Media Lab. And, you know, Google Glass and the world's first smartwatches, they all spun out of work that was being done in this lab. And and then he became a professor at the University of Toronto. When I was uh, studying at U of T, uh, I was uh, a fellow at the accelerator there, the Creative Destruction Lab, the CDL, which Mm -hmm. is um, the the largest accelerator in Canada. And Mm -hmm. there I met Steve Mann, this professor, who was a chief scientist. Mm-hmm. And he invited me to his lab, and, and uh, it was really interesting because there were all these amazing inventions, um, including wearables. Another one, which was uh, HDR, High Dynamic Range Imaging, which mm-hmm. was the uh, the IP of our second company, ITAP. Mm-hmm. Um, and HDR is now on uh, – it's in every commercially available smartphone in the world, and that was his invention. Wow. Um, and he, he invited me over to his lab. And I just realized, wow, um, of all of the inventions of such a prolific scientist and researcher, a very small portion of them were actually commercialized. This, regardless of whether there's a market for it, or regardless of um, of whether there's there's investors willing to put money in. And and so I back in the back in the day, I was I just finished law school and I was working at a corporate law firm. But on the side, I built a business plan. I worked with Steve. And uh, raised some money, built a team together, and launched our first company, Splash Tones. And today, uh, we are we have a pretty international pool of clients. We have uh, real estate companies, architect, architectural firms, um, pretty major attractions, uh, including some of the largest uh, museum and um, uh, attractions organizations around the world uh, that are using our technologies. And then, uh, and then afterwards, we built our second company together. Really, it was the same out of the same lab, 
um, and largely the same researchers. Um, ITAP, which commercialized real-time HDR, which is uh, the same technology on your phone, but uh, 5,000 times faster in real-time, to be used in uh, computer vision applications for welding, um, drones, self-driving car applications, etc. And then a few years ago, I met my current co-founder, uh, Simon Tian. We were in China together on a roadshow. And... Um, and we started a few months ago a project called Global, G-L-O-B-L-E. Um, and Global is is commercializing innovation on the, on a platform through a democratic process. And all consensus, all voting is uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. And so really this, this Global was born out of the idea that there's so many great ideas in the world so much great innovation in IP, but only a very small portion of it actually gets realized. Mm. Uh, but it's not because of a lack of resources. Um, it's really, it's, it's, it's a matter of getting everything together at the right time. You have to have the right team, the right funding. It's got to be the right timing. Uh, there's got to be good chemistry, et cetera. The list goes on and on. So as a result, and I saw this personally in Steve Mann's lab, that only a very small portion of great ideas in the world that have market um, actually get realized. And this is a big problem. And down the hall from Steve's lab uh, was also another very, very well-known researcher by the name of Jeffrey Hinton, who's the inventor of uh, deep learning and also the, the creator of what's now Google Brain, right? He's like 22nd walk from us. And it's exactly the same problem, which is that like a few percent of, of great ideas in that lab were actually commercialized, regardless of whether or not there's a market for it. So that's kind of uh, how I went from from one venture into uh, into a few. That's interesting. So just um, taking a step back um, to the early days. So you study, you have a Bachelor of Science in Piano Performance and Psychology. Now, did you, the, the business side of things, you know, was that something that you've always had or, you know, how did that come about? I mean, yes, you, you, you met your professor, but then you know, how did that all come, you know, come together? Right. I was very fortunate to have some very good mentors in my life. And I, I could say that if it wasn't for these people, then I probably would have not, never entered this field. Uh, one of one of the first was uh, the creator of uh, the, an accelerator in Canada, yeah, uh, Reza Satchu, and mm -hmm. he had created um, a, a a class at the University of Toronto called the Economics of Entrepreneurship, and it was pretty famous. It was pretty hard to get into. You had to uh, apply with a personal statement and a GPA and whatnot, and they they screened you. It was very much like a Harvard Business School type of class, except for undergrads. And we would go in and we would review case studies of entrepreneurs and people building companies from the ground up. And it was very cutthroat. I mean, there was always room for good ideas, but not always for bad ideas. And the best performing student in the class of every, of every cohort would get a Wall Street internship. Uh, and... 
and my, my roommate actually happened to, to, to win that the year before I applied. But when I got in, um, I was just a music student back then, actually. I would show up mm-hmm. to class and open up my binder and like, it would just all be musical manuscripts of like a, a counterpoint and analysis and like symphonies and stuff. And everybody else around me had to open, had, they were economics majors or commerce or engineering physics, very technical backgrounds. And so I, pr- I felt pretty much out of place for the first several weeks. But imagine, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, and then I realized that actually going into, if you're a student and you're studying, let's say accounting or, or economics or, or business, it it doesn't actually pr- equip you to run a company. It doesn't equip you. Uh, it doesn't equip you that much more than a, than a, than studying history or the mm-hmm. arts, because a lot of what you, it takes to succeed in a business, first of all, it, it might be innate, or it might be uh, a function of who you're surrounded with, the mentorship you get. And how mm-hmm. fast you learn, because uh, most of the skills that I picked up, or that that I that I have today, uh, yeah. I just learned on the street, or in, in doing business, or in being mentored by people around me. So people like Reza, who who then basically I was in the last cohort of that class, uh, it it then evolved into something called the next thirty six which is today one of the most prestigious accelerators in, in North America. And then that was the predecessor to something called the Creative Destruction Lab, the CDL at the University of Toronto, which pretty much made Toronto into uh, a startup hub, one of the largest concentrations of AI startups in the world, quantum computing, um, hell, uh, biotech companies, etc um and 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 out of that ecosystem there were a few mentors that basically said look if you could you get a job on bay street or on wall street bay street's like the toronto version of wall street and you could be in a law firm or you could be in a bank and 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 you look down the hallway and your whole career is right there right so like i was a i was working in a corporate law firm and you could see just down the hallway your entire career from from articling student to associate to partner and then to to rainmaker down the at, at, at the end and it's exactly the same in the firm, corporate firm culture at a bank let's say so there was something more i think that was ingrained in me very early on and we call this the entrepreneur entrepreneurial bug and a lot of people once they catch it it's very hard to let go it just spreads yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good but, way to put it. Yeah. So, so I, I interacted a lot with Reza. Like I, I did Next36 as the third cohort. Um, oh, and wow. our idea did Small world. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So our idea didn't take off. We were trying to do a, a tool for therapists, um, especially child therapists, to help them with, help their patients with understanding what activities and exercises they need to do. And we got some traction, but really people were buying into it. Um. And honestly, it taught me a lot. But from your perspective, what did you learn from the from Reza's course? And what were maybe some of the other things that the, the mentors, maybe even at your law firm, that you, that you learned from? What did they teach you? 
Very different lessons from the two sides. Uh, it's different different sets of skill sets. What what Reza taught me is that okay, the first major influence really for everybody in that in that class was just exposure to geniuses and people that were extremely bold. And that by itself is a massive lesson. Because growing up, we go to class, we come home, you know, maybe we go to tutoring or we, we participate in like the average student I'm saying, right? And and we're not really exposed to people that have that have risked everything to to have a chance of creating a legacy, and through through Reza and through people like that and that where we got to meet possibly like at that point in our life at our lives the most uh, uh, like the most powerful entrepreneurs that uh, that we had ever we couldn't even possibly imagine right because we were so young. And that by itself is just a really big influence. We, we would meet people that, for example, uh, started from zero and and uh, basically, you know, they had a family to feed and they had a lot to lose, but still took a risk to create a, a business and scaled it up. And I, I think the, the biggest lesson is not in any particular uh, hard business skill set or hard technical skill set, but how to identify a market and how to really um, how to prioritize things in our life and how to find the right people to work with. Like these are largely very, they're more, they're more of an art in the early stages than a science. And, but really like the biggest lesson was uh, a mindset, right? We, we actually had this, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was like this hierarchy that, mm -hmm. that was taught to us and, Basically, at the bottom of the hierarchy was a lot of these uh, like professional services jobs, um, mm -hmm. like for example, uh, like accountants or or lawyers or doctors or what have you. And then mm -hmm. one step higher would be investment bankers. Mm -hmm. And uh, these investment bankers, basically, their their job deals with a lot more leverage than these professional services, the average professional services workers, the rung below. And then one degree above, uh, one step above that, the second highest one was uh, private equity. Mm -hmm. And then at the pinnacle of this hierarchy was entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't very clear what the metric was of organizing this. And I think, of course, like it's, it's, it's an overgeneralization. Um, and there, you could interpret however you want, whatever the y-axis is from going from bottom to top, right? It's, that's not to say that entrepreneurs or, or, uh, you know, investment bankers are better in any way than a doctor or an accountant, right? But mm -hmm. I, I think, and you can interpret it however you want, but I, I think what, what the, uh, the metric for Reza was is is the, the the total possible amount of impact whether socially or economically you could have in the world mm -hmm. right because if you're an accountant or you're a lawyer uh it may not be very big right but if you're if you own a private equity fund if you mm -hmm. if you own a hedge fund for example your impact could be massive that is if you use your if you wield your power for positive good uh for social good and economic good and the same goes for an entrepreneur 
And that type mm-hmm. of thinking is, it's just, you never hear it in a normal classroom setting. And I would say that's the biggest lesson. And it basically, uh, it, it rewired the way we thought about, especially in such a, in our formative years as a student, uh, what our path is forward, right? Do we, do we want to strive for, for uh, a pretty normal way forward? Or do we want something that is may, maybe has a chance of a little bit uh, broader impact? That's the first lesson. And then, and then from but the, from the corporate world. So I worked in a firm called uh, Davies, which was one of the Seventh Sisters, one of the top law firms in Canada, with offices uh, around the world. And at that job, I was uh, working with corporate governance policies, diversity policies in public. Uh, publicly listed issuers like on the Toronto Stock Exchange and it was a pretty you know it was was very uh, kind of cookie cutter uh, path for a law graduate like me and I was very fortunate to have also had that experience as well because it you know I, I think a lot of young people would benefit from going down the beaten path even if it is just for a little bit to it's like it's like when you're growing up and your parents teach you to make your bed and brush your teeth and fold your clothes and all that. those little things, right? That that make you very organized and teach you mm-hmm. to to work. Um, you know that those types of, of of habits and skills. Then when you grow up, you become very reliable, uh, and and you're able to work in a team setting or you're able to do this and that. Working in a corporate firm setting will. T- is is, an, is analogous to that, right? Where you, where you you kind of get a taste of what it's like in a major bureaucracy, how teams work together, uh, deadlines and and uh, accountability and things like that, which is very hard to do, uh, very hard to learn from a small team setting, and especially mm-hmm. hard when it's just a bunch of co-founders straight out of school that don't have those skills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, best of both worlds. Oh, nice. Uh, just um, going on, um, you know, some of the points that you've um, raised or shared with us. So would you sort of say, looking at the startup world, um, creativity and team, having, a, you know, people, you know, is that something that you've learned that, you know, is definitely required or what would your... Yeah, I, I think... I think it's it's both. It's a bit of both nature and nurture. There are some people that are innately very good. Uh, they have very strong social radars. So Paul Graham actually writes about this. You, you and maybe some of your audience members may have read some of Paul Graham's work, the founder of Y Combinator. Yeah. And he actually has an essay on his wife, who is also like his partner in creating YC basically saying she's she doesn't say much in meetings jessica livingston but she has an extremely strong social radar which means like she's very good at vetting people and some people are good better than others um like for example uh it when i was when i was younger like i wasn't very good for example at vetting um you know whether it's business partners or romantic partners but my mom was extremely good at it like my mom would meet like a girl once or like a like a potential business partner once and 
instantly get a feeling. And she, like every single time she was correct. So I, I, I think part of it is a name. You think that was a self-fulfilling bias? You don't think it was like, I'm going to bring girlfriend X over and then realize that my mom doesn't like her. So I'm going to start to not like her. Yeah. I mean, there, I thought there was that possibility, but I, I, I don't think it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy like that. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's like, like there's a saying that like, and, and I'm using romantic partners as, as an analogy, right. For business partners, like this, this analogy has been used very widely. It's like finding a co-founder is like finding a spouse, except you don't get to divorce as easily, right? Mm-hmm. And the, yeah. the, pre, the prenuptial, the prenup might not be as clean cut as in a wedding. So the analogy is really strong. And um, and basically there's a saying that the, if you're in a relationship, let's say, you know, with, yeah. with a boyfriend or a girlfriend – uh, or you're married, the best indicator of whether or not you'll succeed in that relationship is not, it actually comes from third parties. It, it's from those around you that love you the most and their opinions of your relationship. So mm-hmm. very clearly, that means that perhaps when we're in a bubble like that, our social radar, as applied to the current relationship, is extremely deficient. We may be very biased. For example, we might idolize our partner or we might idolize a certain co-founder. But from mm-hmm. a third-person perspective, it's just a terrible relationship that won't work. It's Maybe it's toxic or maybe it's um, there's something missing. Right. Mm-hmm. So part of it – but part of it can be learned, I think. Right. Like let's say that uh, you're, you're dead set on being an entrepreneur. And, uh, and let's say you're just a technical co-founder, right? You need somebody, you, you're the person who can build it. You need somebody who can sell it. So let's say you're dead set, but let's say you've had like 10 co-founders that are, you know, maybe you, you hope were compliments to you, but they all were just terrible. They all sucked. Like there's gotta be something that you learn from that pattern, Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's that might actually be the single most important first decision you make is the person you choose to get in bed with. Pardon my French, but mm-hmm. beyond beyond whatever market you're attacking, because that can change. Beyond whatever your MVP is, right, um, or who mm-hmm. your investor is, is potentially who your partner is. Yeah, right. but but going. So if we, if we take a step back towards where you were when all this was happening, so you've taken all these classes, you realized the big, bold potential of entrepreneurship. Um, you ended up going to this law firm. At what point did you realize the law firm path is not for you? Maybe finding an idea is the path for you. And then did you look for an idea or was it just you ended up kind of falling um, into some of the work that Steve Mann was doing? Yeah, I actually had a number of ideas myself that I wanted to push out, and one of them actually started when I was in uh, when I was in Razor's class. It was uh, it was a platform on which you could browse musical events and music artists, basically on a on a like in a local setting, like on a map. So if you can imagine, it's like Yelp meets um, like Live Nation. Where basically you can browse a map and basic and see 
what is happening in the city. For example, in a city as, as rich culturally as Manhattan, uh, as New York or uh, Toronto or in like Nashville, like you kind of, it's the, the information to browse the, the city life is extremely fragmented. But what if there, what if there was like an app or like a, like a map uh, that you could browse and just basically sample an artist's music uh, right there and uh, and just see what's happening, right? So basically, it's like a massive like social media platform um, for music lovers. And we actually prototyped it, and we got a bunch of uh, pretty reputable names in the music business on board, um, including like Columbia, like uh, one of the founders of Columbia Records. And uh, well, and and the dean of the University of Toronto, uh, music faculty and and the Glenn Gold School, etc. Mm -hmm. But we were just so young, like we we had a we had a business plan, we put it through Reza's course, and we got feedback, um, and we were close to raising money, but we just didn't know what to do next. Right? Mm -hmm. So I put it on break for a bit, went through school, and uh, when I was working in a law firm. I just, I like I said, when when the bug is there, like it's it just doesn't leave you, even if it has to lay dormant for years, like maybe decades for some people I know, where they they wanted to be, they wanted to own their own business when they were in the twenties, but they ended up working working for big corp for like twenty thirty years, got married, had children, bought a house or whatever, and then, and then only then, they're like, hey, I want to start a business. It always it it's always there. It never dies. Right? It's just that maybe mm -hmm. some people um, never act on it or never acquire the skills or network to be able to to have a high chance of success. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I had uh, a bunch of my own ideas like that. Basically, that uh, that had pretty it I, pretty good perception in my network, and I even had like um, friends and investors that wanted to help me with it. But, uh, you know, it, it just, the, the critical momentum never coalesced for any of these ideas on all fronts. And uh, when I was working at the firm, uh, I met uh, a few very inspirational people that basically gave me a certain impetus in my life to, to say, hey, maybe there's, there's a different role I could play than being just a cog in this machine. And... Um, and I, and it was it was pretty like emotional for me too because like when you meet a, a very inspirational person that has really good ideas, you and and you become very um, tight with them like on a personal level, you might start to start you might start to feel a certain obligation that maybe there's a role that you can play to to, to take some of this innovation that's being created and push it out to the world even if it's of some benefit. So, and that, that feeling really took over me. And so I, I started um, working with Steve a bit and meeting a lot of like-minded entrepreneurs through the CDL um, and down in California. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and the rest is history. <laughs>